Hello there. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. My name is Niall Green and in this episode we're going to be talking about Al-Manar, the magazine that took Salafism to the world. Founded in Cairo in 1897, Al-Manar, the word means the lighthouse in Arabic, became the primary mechanism, the primary medium for spreading the new doctrines that would be called Salafism from Egypt across not just the Islamic world, but across the world as a whole, or at least anywhere in the world, from South America to Southeast Asia, where there were people who could read Arabic. Its editor was a Syrian religious reformer called Rashid Ridda. Watching the Ottoman Empire into which he was born crumble around his ears in the first decades of the 20th century, and watching the European empires grabbing the remaining bits of the empire across the Middle East, Ridda was concerned with empowering Muslims through the embrace of modernity, and not least of modern things, modern technologies, and modern trade goods. Paradoxically, his way of making this possible was to urge Muslims to return to what he saw as the original pure Islam of the pious ancestors, who were called in Arabic as salaf that word, as-salaf, the ancestors, gives us the term Salafism. And Ridda was certainly, if not the founder, but the great promoter of this early version of Salafism. In this episode, we'll be exploring and defining what we might mean by Salafism, at least what it meant in the first decades of the 20th century as it spread from Egypt across many regions of the world. Joining me in this conversation is Leo Halevi, Professor of History and Professor of Law at Vanderbilt University. Professor Halevi is the author of Modern Things on Trial, Islam's Global and Material Reformation in the Age of Ridda, 1865-1935, which was published by Columbia University Press in 2019. Hello, Leo. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Delighted to be here. So today we're going to be talking about Salafism. And we're going to be talking in particular about the Arabic magazine Al-Manar, the lighthouse that took Salafism to the world in the first decades of the 20th century. But before we start exploring that magazine and the ideas of its editor, Rashid Ridda, perhaps you can start us off, Leo, by telling us what is Salafism? Like a lot of words ending with ism, Salafism sounds like a technical and precise term, but its meaning is unclear and contested. Etymologically, it's just composed of the Arabic word Salaf, which means ancestors, and the suffix ism. So on a very basic level, you might translate it as ancestralism, or if you prefer, primitivism. Of, of course, the reference is to Muslim ancestors, and it's typically used by Sunnis to invoke early 
Islamic heroes, beginning with the first converts to Islam and the rightly guided caliphs. And then by convention, the category is extended often to the second and third generation of pious exemplars. However, those who've been identified um, or been, those who have identified or been identified with Salafism have highlighted the authority of the Quran and the Hadith, the canonical corpus of prophetic tradition. And they have argued for a return to scripture and made arguments for reform on the basis of scriptural precedents and proof texts. And since they've elevated these scriptural texts above ancestors, I think it would be better to translate Salafism in a non-literal fashion or, or maybe gloss it with something like ancestralist Sunni scripturalism. <laughs> That's quite a mouthful, but I think it would do for um, a definition. Now, the, the Salaf have figured in Sunni thought for centuries and centuries, but the ism in Salafism suggests the existence of a philosophical school or social movement or divisive ideology and therefore quite a modern development. And until recently, scholars have largely associated it with two radically different historical contexts. I have reservations about the validity of these associations, but before I explain them, let me give you a quick sense of the contrast um, in terms of the references uh, in scholarly and public discourse. So Salafism has been associated first with a quote unquote modernist school of thought founded by two intellectuals, Jamal Adin al-Afghani and Muhammad Abdu. And we have an Akbar's chamber on Muhammad Abdu, I might add. Yes, I noticed. Uh, it's called something like the Martin Luther of the Muslim world, right? with a question mark. <laughs> and, and second, with an anti-Western fundamentalist movement driven by Saudi ideologues. The school of intellectuals professed a commitment to ideals of reform, islah. It flourished in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, especially in Egypt, but with significant connections overseas. The intellectuals affiliated with it wanted not just religious reforms, but also educational, legal, social, economic, political reforms. They were committed to progress and development. They admired European nations in many respects and wondered about the secrets behind their industrial and military and scientific advances. Their basic goal was to adopt European models while maintaining a cultural commitment to Islam. Accordingly, they justified their arguments for reform on the basis of the Quran, early Islamic traditions, and the virtues of the Salaf, the pious ancestors. By the late 20th century, Salafism started to mean something very different in public and academic discourse. On one level, it became more and more of a polite synonym for the pejorative term Wahhabism, which had long been in use to name the divisive 
doctrinal movement founded by the 18th century Najdi reformer, Muhammad ibn Abd al-Wahhab. On another level, it became the preferred term for a global religious movement spearheaded by ultra-conservative Saudi clerics. And Western scholars began to pay increased attention to it after the 9-11 attacks and to theorize about ways in which Salafists engaged in domestic politics or in some cases international terrorism and were divided despite their belonging to single common creed as it were into a number of different factions. And these factions, for instance, were labeled purists, uh, politicos, jihadists. I have several reservations about the characterizations of Salafism that I just shared with you. My main one is that they're based on external as opposed to internal identifications and value judgments. So the external, the, by external you mean of, of scholars, perhaps Western scholars, rather than the, the actual terms and concepts and debates among these Muslims themselves, whether they are calling themselves Salafis of various kinds or not. Precisely. Typologies that scholars come up with, especially political scientists, but they get a lot of currency in academia. The intellectuals from the late 19th century who supposedly founded Salafism never actually self-identified as Salafists. In fact, the concept of Salafism didn't even exist. And I show in my book how modern things on trial in modern things on trial how um, we should even hesitate to think of Al-Afghani and Abdu as Salafists. And terms such as modernist, fundamentalist, purist, and jihadist, they're not adopted by so-called Salafists to describe themselves. So this is in, entirely something that on one level describes our own interests, um, fears, and obsessions. The, the two historically contextualized definitions of Salafism that I shared with you, one associated with intellectuals from late 19th century and early 20th century Egypt and Syria, who were eager to learn from Europe, the other with ideologues from Saudi Arabia in the late 20th century, who supposedly wanted Muslims to reject the West, must seem uh, worlds apart. But efforts have been made to link them historically, and to a large extent, they've centered on a Syrian emigrate to Egypt, Muhammad Rashid Rida, a critical figure in the history of Salafism. We'll be turning to Rida in, in, in a moment or two, but just as in a sense to, to recap or, or what you've said, I mean, so, so Salafism is in a sense, at least as the self-identifying Salafis, such as written from the 1920s in particular, when I understand it, the term starts to be used in, 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 in the sense for an, an Arabic movement or indeed a method. It's, it's, a, it's a way of engaging with, returning to in a sense, the Islam of the early ancestors and rejecting what's come between. So Salafism is part of this larger set of movements, but what we might say a larger historical developmented across the Islamic world in the 19th and especially the 20th century and ongoing, which we might call a Muslim reformation that has many, many different players, many, many different, different, uh, different movements. And 
the context in which it's coming out, as you'll tell us more about this, is, is between two empires, as you've mentioned, Egypt and Syria. Syria in the late 19th, early 20th century is still part of the Ottoman Empire. And Egypt is, particularly from the 1880s, part of, of the British Empire. So we're in an imperial world and a world that, as you'll explain to us more fully, is, a, is an increasingly modern world, a techno, uh, technological, a scientific world, uh, a connected, globalized world that Ridda and the Salafis are, are keen to engage with. So as we turn to Ridda then, perhaps you can tell us more about who was this figure, Rashid Ridda, and what was his model of Salafi reform? He was a famous Arab Islamic reformer, a towering figure in every history of modern Islam. He was one of the most important Arab Islamic scholars and activists of the early 20th century. This was a period characterized by European neo-imperial expansion, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, and the rise of Arab and Islamic nationalism. Much of his fame came from his responses to these historical challenges as an advocate for the independence of greater Syria and the Arabian Peninsula, and from his many contributions to Islamic law and theology, which he made as the founder and editor of the journal Al-Manar, a pioneering Arabic Islamic magazine that circulated globally and that had an astonishingly long print run from 1898 to 1935. He was born in a small Mediterranean town in Ottoman Syria now a region that's in Lebanon, in 1865. And he received a progressive Islamic education in a new madrasa in Tripoli, part of the Ottoman Empire's initiatives for reforming Islam. By the end of the century, he migrated to Cairo, which was then part of Britain's informal empire. And with the exception of a couple of years spent abroad, he stayed there for the rest of his life. Egypt under British rule was an appealing destination for Ottoman Syrian dissidents like him because they enjoyed their new business opportunities and much greater freedom of the press. Rida took advantage of these openings to buy a printing press and establish the publishing house Al-Manar, which means the lighthouse. In my book, I emphasize the extent to which this was a business, and I describe him as an entrepreneurial Islamic reformer. And this element that you're, you're, you're bringing our attention to, that he's, a, he's an intellectual, he's a publisher, and he's a businessman. And, and moving to Cairo, that really makes sense, because Cairo was then, as it is now, one of the, the two major Arabic printing centers, along with Beirut. And it's perhaps the, the major Muslim, at least Arabic, uh, Muslim printing center from around 1820 when, when printing begins in Cairo. So that makes sense. And, and as you explore in your book too, the, the printing uh, or the publishing scene in Egypt is less regulated, less censored than it is in the Ottoman Empire. So there are various kind of uh, good reasons why he should move to Egypt because it's also linked in with the, 
the wider, let's say, communication transport system that he'll be making use of to, to distribute Almana. So yeah, let's, uh, let's explore that a little bit further. Thank you. This quality, his entrepreneurship, which was essential to the founding of this press, has not been very much appreciated by his biographers. But it's perhaps this quality that allowed him to succeed as an editor and author and activist. And I try to highlight it in my book. Whereas intellectual historians have long been interested in the genealogy of ideas. And in a sense, this tired question of originality. What is really new is the fact that he succeeded in striking out on his own. Instead of working as a teacher or a judge or as serving as um, an official of the state or as an educator in a madrasa or at Al-Azhar, he became his own master and an independent author and publisher. For this success, he depended only on customers or paying readers. And when we think about his writings, we should consider that fact, how he needed to flourish in his profession, to work as a reformer, to appeal to readers enough to sell his monthly magazine and his books. As a Muslim reformer, one of the ideas that he preached tirelessly was the idea that Muslims could gain political power advance economically and enjoy all of the advantages of modernity if they embraced his easygoing vision of Islam. He insisted that Islam was not a restrictive religion. It was an easy religion that urged believers to enjoy the goods of this world. He acknowledged, as did most intellectuals in this period, that Muslim societies were poor, and downtrodden and that they had to reform themselves if they hoped ever to compete with Europe. But religion or rather Islam in its original authentic form was not the reason for Muslims lagging behind. What was holding them back were traditional, provincial, narrow-minded interpretations of Islam by the ulama who kept placing barriers in front of Muslims preventing them from progressing and essentially leading them to a critical choice between abandoning their religion and flourishing in the world. The solution to this crisis in his eyes was for Muslims to understand that Islam's sacred law allowed believers to adopt secular innovations. It only opposed religious innovations, changes to rules of worship especially, but it did not oppose other kinds of novelties. In this historical period, what this meant was that Muslims were free to embrace most European goods, technologies, and models. They didn't have to worry about losing their religion in the process. So this speaks directly to what you raised before, the context of a world dominated by European empires in which there is an appeal um, in, in, in um, returning to the past, as it were, and finding Muslim inspiration for change. And this is really fascinating, isn't it? This dialogue with the past, but also rejection with the past. I mean, so much of what we might broadly call the Muslim Reformation or Muslim Reform movements, rather like in parallel with the Christian Reformation of the Protestants in the 16th century onwards, meant actually rejecting what was in between, rejecting the centuries of tradition, and in Ritter's case, particularly legal tradition, in order to get back to something 
pure and original and ancestral. When we started off talking, you used the word a primitivism as a way of perhaps translating Salafism. And I assume in that way you meant by contrast or, or by comparison, let's say, to primitive Methodism, which is the sense that the, the label of certain Methodist Christian Protestants would use to say we're going back to the early, purer, primitive Christianity. And that's what's happening with Ridder, at least the claim. But in doing so, and particularly as we'll explore further, as, as, as a legal thinker and indeed a, a, a um, someone who, who gives legal rulings or legal opinions, at least, fatwas, he's involved in what becomes, a, perhaps in some ways, the major element of, the major component of Salafism, which is rejecting the four schools of Islamic law, the four madhabs, as they're so-called, the, uh, the, the Shafi'i, Maliki, etc. So in this sense, as a reformer, I, th I think it might be helpful to think of Ridder as in some ways a disruptor. He's a disruptor of tradition, but he's also a disruptor in a technological and an institutional sense in the way that, let's say, economists. He was interested in economics, wasn't he, as well? He had discussions with various economists, or particularly the British economist Alfred Mitchell Inns, as you discuss in your book. But he's a disruptor in that sense, too, because, as you mentioned, he's not taking part, he's not seeking a position within the Ottoman religious hierarchy, the Elmia, the formal religious hierarchy of the Ottoman Empire, nor is he seeking an equivalent position in the religious hierarchy of, of British Egypt in the way that his erstwhile mentor, uh, Muhammad Abdu had, rising, rising up to the position of Grand Mufti in Egypt. So in that sense, he's a, a technological, a legal, a theological, um, but also in some ways a, a com, uh, an institutional disruptor. Yeah, I think that's right. And the only thing I would say by way of qualification is that he certainly was relentlessly critical of what he saw as the established medieval opinions of those who adhere to their school of thought, their legal school of thought, their madhab, as you said. And, and with that adherence prevented the flexibility that he thought Muslims should have in the, the pursuit of religion and also for that matter, the pursuit of profit. So he constantly attacked rigid adherence to the madhab system, but he didn't reject the rulings of schools of law that had accumulated over the centuries all the time or consistently, because what happens is that he's in fact, often making use of a variety of different rulings or even madhab positions in order to make his cases. So it's more that I guess he does not want to do away entirely with the madhabs, but he wants to approach, approach their opinions flexibly in order to get his desired result. Um, and one of the things that I found is that, for instance, when he corresponds with readers in regions of the Muslim world where a certain madhab 
dominated. He would frequently use teachings from the Madhab of that of, of that region in order to put forward his own point of view. So he's still very much working within a system where Madhabs matter and are respected and doesn't do away with it entirely to only focus on the Quran and the Hadith as Salafists are sometimes reputed to do. That, that, that's fascinating. And that, I suppose, gives us this sense that, as, as you discuss in your book, through, and as you hinted there, that his magazine, Al-Manal, has so many letters and indeed requests for legal opinions coming in. So, so he's creating his position in dialogue and perhaps in some ways in compromise with that readership that he needs to persuade through engaging with them. And, 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 and his vehicle for this is this, his magazine, Al-Manal, the, the Lighthouse. And, and this is the period, isn't it, around, it, it's founded in, in 1898, isn't it? And, and it, it continues long afterwards, but he remains as editor and, and main content giver, I guess, until his death in 1935. And, and this is the, a period in, around the last decades of the 19th century, the first decades of the 20th century. There's a, there's a big boom in the Arabic print media and indeed in Arabic journals. And this coincides with, with wider communicational developments of global postal systems, which he's able to make use of to have his magazine read, not just in the Arab Middle East, but, but as you've discussed, actually in increasing numbers of his readership. Uh, I think you mentioned three fifths at least in, 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 at some point uh, of, of his readership, or at least the people who wrote in to, to him are from other parts of not just what we might think of as the Muslim world, but the world entirely whether Argentina, where Lebanese Arabs had been migrating in the 19th century, whether in India a great deal, whether among East African Swahili Muslims, or at least those who could read Arabic, or indeed right down into Southeast Asia, Singapore, and even in China. So he has this huge, increasingly large readership of, of Al-Manar in which he, who of course receive his, his opinions on things. Perhaps you can tell us then how did uh, the in Al Manar make use of fatwas of, of legal opinions to promote new ways for Muslims to engage with the the modern world, which, as you've explained, that's 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 his drive, isn't it? That's his his aim. Yeah, I'd like I'd love to do that, and let me reflect on it. But I guess before I turn to this, I want to add one thing in response to your previous question, because you asked me to think also about his model of Salafi reform. And I feel there's one thing I didn't spell out that maybe does require just spelling out. When he made an argument that Islam at its foundation was a religion that was fundamentally open and conducive to political power and economic development, he repeatedly invoked the Salaf. And for him, these ancestors were progressive models, paragons of modernity, exemplars who would allow Muslims to thrive by not putting obstacles in their path. I call this tendency or orientation laissez-faire Salafism. I understand this spirit as a reformist Muslim expression of the ethos of free trade that existed in Egypt and throughout the British Empire 
where much emphasis was placed on eliminating religious barriers to commerce and the pursuit of profit. In Modern Things on Trial, I describe it as a prosperity gospel and speak about how Rida tried to spread the good tidings of, of adherence to this original spirit and basically tell Muslims that this was the way to overcome hardship and rise to affluence. Now, um, you wanted me to think next about fatwas, the fatwas of, of Al-Banar, and how Muslims um, then were prompted by it to engage with the modern. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that's right, because this is the, the, in a sense, the legal mechanism, but also the persuasive and the, let's say, the dialogical mechanism, if that doesn't seem too, too strange, isn't it? Because people are writing into him, aren't they, from these various corners of the world in general, at least people who can read Arabic, and, and asking, is this Islamic? Is this allowed? Is this halal? Is this haram? Is this one of the, is this for, forbidden? Is this allowed? Is this, and, and, and the this in question is, is often very material things that in the title of your book, modern things. Yeah, and this interactive quality that you're describing, I think, is critical. So I guess the short answer to your question would be for me to say that Al-Manar, in its fatwas, promoted or maybe better yet reflected laissez-faire Salafism. Because these fatwas expressed not only Rida's ideas, but maybe what's more interesting, the aspirations and interests of the readers of his magazine. So let's unpack a little bit what, what this means and, and maybe start with the definition of a fatwa. So a fatwa is an authoritative but not binding theological or juridical opinion that hopefully a qualified Muslim jurist known as a mufti gives in response to a question that is raised by an individual person. This at least is a standard or formal definition and take it with a grain of salt because in practice there are often writings labeled fatwas that don't actually exactly conform to this definition. Now the recipient of the fatwa could be a ruler, a judge, a citizen may decide to follow the mufti's advice or not. There is no mechanism for making a fatwa compulsory. Specialists on Islamic law have long recognized this, but there is a tendency in the field to exaggerate the influence of muftis and fatwas. And I've argued against it on both evidentiary and causal grounds. Most of the time, we just have no proof whatsoever that a fatwa is effective or consequential. And even in rare cases where action seems to follow the directives of a fatwa, it's not clear that the fatwa was really the fundamental cause or driving factor as opposed to maybe just a justification or a rationale. And in some ways, one of the reasons for this, isn't it? Because as, you, as, as we've said, a, a fatwa is, is a legal opinion, isn't it? Or a legal decision, but, but that's actually separate from the ability to enforce it. It's not a law that is actually enforced. It might be by a particular state or a particular ruler or, or an executive power in that sense, but, but it might not be. And that's the case with Ridder because Ridder, as we've already said, he doesn't hold any office, does he? He's, he's simply an editor and a publisher and in a sense, uh, 
a freelance mufti, in a sense, a freelance legal opinion giver, but he has no ability to make people follow his legal opinions. Yeah, precisely. And it's not just a legal opinion, but it's a legal opinion that's prompted by a question. Mm. So, for example, if you have somebody saying, should we stop drinking Coca-Cola as a way to boycott the United States? And the Mufti says, yes, and here is why. And then the boycott ensues. You can take the Mufti's opinion, and some scholars have, in the case of a Mufti called Yusuf al-Karadawi, as evidence of the effectiveness of fatwa. But the fact of the matter is that the question is being asked by those who are already clearly thinking along these lines of doing that. So in that case, we've got to be extremely skeptical that the fatwa is having any real effect beyond justifying something that was maybe already going to happen anyway. But there is an element, I suppose, also of communication, isn't there? So there's the dialogue, let's say, between the person who asks and then the fatwa giver, let's say, Ridda and Read X who writes in. But what's crucial about Al-Manar, and indeed with broader fatwa giving, and sometimes what's called fatwa shopping in the early 21st century, is the communicational medium, whether the printed magazine or in the contemporary period, the, the internet. And, and in that sense, Ridd is a really, you know, he's a game changer in his disruptive, in his sense of as a disruptor, because although he has no legal office in the British or the Ottoman Empire, what he does have is this great big readership through commercial printing, which can expand in a sense exponentially. As long as people will, will subscribe to his magazine, he will run off copies in Cairo and, and, and post them out worldwide. So the communicational reach, that's something new and, and important. And, and even as you say, it's hard to gauge whether people did follow them, the sheer ability to distribute his opinions, his legal opinions so wide, is something I think new, isn't it? Yeah, I think that is uh, new and very significant historically. I mean, I believe that a few things make the fatwas of Al-Banar quite exciting historically. And one has to do with the subjects covered by them. Generally speaking, historians of Muslim reform that have dealt with this, with this period talk about a tendency of modernizing states to restrict Islamic law and, and in a way to increasingly secularize aspects of law. For instance, through the promulgation of commercial codes or criminal codes. And, to, and they speak about the establishment of a legal system where Sharia courts have a narrower, narrower, a narrower slice. Often, in terms of, let's say, family law, wouldn't it? Marriage, divorce, etc., would be the classic, you know. Precisely, personal and confessional matters, as opposed to dealing with things um, of mixed interest, for example, or commercial issues or criminal issues. And so, the picture given is one where Islamic law is, is becoming less and less significant. And I think the problem with this historical perspective is, is that it's too narrow because it basically focuses too much on positive law and state institutions. But there are other ways to think of religion. 
and Islamic law that address efforts at continuity, perseverance, and reinvention. And the Fatos of Almanar are great evidence of that because they deal with all sorts of things, anything you can imagine without having to face those kinds of restrictions or those narrower horizons. So they allow us to challenge this secularization narrative or impression and to present instead a kind of more expansive um, understanding of religion and law in this period. And I, I'd say added to that, the second historical development or maybe pair of developments that I would highlight are, are precisely the ones you brought up, the Arabic print revolution and globalization. Cairo, as you mentioned, was a center for the publication of daily newspapers, popular journals, books in general, and increasingly these tried to cultivate a mass readership in Egypt. In the early 20th century, that really does start to take off. And in this competitive market, um, Rida tried to establish his journal as the signature Arabic Islamic monthly, the magazine dedicated to enlightenment and reform with a kind of deep appreciation of the origins of Islam. And amazingly, he found this global readership with even significant Arab diaspora readers all the way in Singapore. And my guess is that one of the reasons for this success was the fatwa column, because in fact, he himself by his own recollections was struggling commercially in the first four or five years of the run of his journal. He launched the fatwa column in 1903, so the fifth year of the journal. And this was also around a time when some fatwas became incredibly controversial, especially Muhammad Abdus Transvaal fatwa and ignited a great controversy in Egypt. And I think anybody who was smart in publishing realized then that fatwas, controversy, boost sales and interest and that this was the way to go. And sure enough, not long after this, he starts to brand his uh, column, a kind of monthly fatwa column. And in 1904 already, he publishes a special kind of notice that is unprecedented really, and basically says that to get a fatwa, you have to be a subscriber to his journal. Mm. And effectively in this way, he turned fatwas into capitalist commodities. It was a privilege given only to members of his club and certainly, certainly an incentive for subscriptions. Um, fatwa uh, seekers would have their name and their country of origin and their profession printed in Almanar and could therefore appear there as authors, as the authors of fatwa requests. And this brings me back to your question. How did Almanar promote new ways for Muslims to engage with the modern world through its fatwas? Well, it allowed these readers, paying readers as opposed to free writers, to shape coverage in response to their interests and values as religious, economic, and political actors. And 
essentially the communications of Almanar, the fatwas of Almanar, were not independent ones, but they were ones that depended on readers' engagements. And this allowed them to put forward their own religious approach to trade, consumption, technology, empire, nationalism. It's for this reason that when I think about Islamic law and Islamic reform, I really would like us to try to abandon a top-down, overly intellectual approach to these things and think of Salafism and projects of reform as emerging from below. So readers asked Rida for fatos because they wanted his authoritative support in communal struggles and riveting debates over the meaning of Islam against those who were evoking the Sharia to prohibit new things, his fatos allowed them to justify their modern engagements as proper Islamic ones. They were thus essential actors in the making of laissez-faire Salafism. That's really fascinating, because as you said, this sort of, as it were, a, a bottom-up or a sort of a, a movement that's from, not driven from the Salafism emerging, at least this version and this early iteration of Salafism emerging not, as it were, from just one, one figure, from Ridder, but through his engagements with a whole series of other figures. And I think what's important about that, to my mind at least, and what's a, a big transformation that continues, is that it, it's, it begins to shift the, the, the location, in a sense, of, of, of Islamic authority, and indeed of making Islam, in the sense of what is Islamic, what's allowed, what's not, what's licit, what's not, and making that shift away from, let's say, older institutions or indeed particular sites, whether the Ottoman Ilmiya system, the Ottoman religious hierarchy, or indeed its equivalent in other early modern uh, Muslim uh, ruled states, and shifting the location of authority to what we might just say is the media. In this case, a print medium, a magazine. But as the 20th century goes on, as it's went to the 21st century, those media, of course, become more and more and more up until the whole series of Twitter fatwas or, or, or fatwas shopping online that I mentioned today. And that creates, in a sense, then a splintering effect as time goes on, as, 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 as the authority and the location, as I say, of deciding what isn't or isn't Islam moves from smaller numbers of authorities and institutions to, in a sense, and, and it, a potentially kind of unlimited number of of, of media. And indeed that, that ripple effect in the broader mediascape, so to speak, of, of the Islamic world or of Muslims worldwide, or what we might call a, perhaps a replication effect, really happens because various readers around the world start to found their, their own journals. In Singapore, there's Al-Imam founded in 1906, Faith. There's the Swahili magazine, in fact, the first Swahili journal, Uwangonzi, Guidance, founded in 1930 on the model of Al-Manar as well. Even in China, in Guangdong then, so in a, in a port city in China, the Tianfang Shueli Yuequam, the Arabic Theological Monthly, as Chinese readers start to found their own magazines and indeed create, as it were, their, their own iterations or their own, their own rulings in a sense. But let's return to 
Rida and Almanar itself as the, I suppose, the, 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 the figure who sets up or, or demonstrates, I suppose, the ability of, of a magazine to do this. And you described his magazine as putting modern things on trial. So what do you mean by that, Leo? Yeah, Almanar worked as a kind of court, a literary court that heard all sorts of cases. And the ones who had the right to litigate in this forum were, as I mentioned earlier, paying subscribers since they were the ones requesting fatwas. And in collaboration with Rida, they put modern things on trial. But the questions or fatwa requests or cases that they brought into this court were ones that, had, that arose in their own societies, in their own cities, and had very much to do with religious debates and social clashes. And so the next question to ask is, what were they fighting about? Why did they need external arbitration? Why did they seek an authoritative Islamic ruling from somebody all the way in Cairo? And what I discovered it was, is that it was not quite modernity, capitalism or imperialism in the abstract that bothered them as systems or contrasts or, or constructs. Um, the focus was on symbols and embodiments or objects that signified these things and also had a straightforward connection to Islamic traditions and scriptural prohibitions. Let me give you one example, and I think the specificity of, of the trials will surprise you. So one of the most exciting instruments of the age that has to do with new media was the gramophone. And it was an emblem of technological innovation, global capitalism, and conspicuous consumption. But when it made the passage into Muslim societies and, and was embraced by early adopters, all sorts of issues emerged. And the conflicts in the end that gave rise to fatwas were not about the gramophone in general or about new media in general, but very specific and have, had to do with the fact that the Quran now appeared in a new medium in uh, a disc record, and that had all sorts of implications for uh, ritual and for relations to religious authority and for relations to scripture and commerce in it. So it got that specific, and and those were really the, the, the reasons for the trials at length. In my book, I deal with all sorts of commodities besides gramophone records with toilet paper, banknotes, paint with alcohol, tight pants, um, photographs, lottery tickets, tourist hotels, telegraphs, all sorts of things. And I'd say that one reason that I wrote this book was that when I was reading these fatwas, I kept expecting the fatwa seekers or the mufti to speak about these things in relation to the West or Europe or, or, or as Western objects because I was taught in a way by the histories that I learned that 
the division between Islam and the West was so consuming in this period of European imperial dominance. And to my great surprise, the vast majority of discussions about these objects never mentioned Europe or America or the West or anything like that, even though in fact the objects are coming as imports. And I came to realize that those were not the critical driving questions in this discourse that were provoking the trials. In fact, the, the, the commodities, the technologies were already in the hands of some Muslims. They were already their possessions. And it was particular issues having to do with Muslim tradition and with Islamic law. For instance, the kinds of issues that I mentioned in connection with the Quran disc records that actually were what fired things up and, and got the discussions going. And it's, it's what made me realize that I needed to write a new history of modern Islam that looked into these new technologies and commodities without assuming this kind of bipolar division between Islam and the West. And it's an extraordinary number of, of commodities of modern things, quite literally and tangibly and physically that you look at. And, and it's really a, a very large body of evidence too, isn't it? I mean, it's in the, what the 30, 32 years from 1903, as you mentioned, when the fact was start to appeal in Al-Banar until Ridda's death in 1935, there were somewhat over a thousand of these fatwas. So it's, it's really an extensive body of evidence that you're actually rethinking these these major developments of how we think about, as you said, kind of in the way that whether, whether the media or indeed scholarship has framed discussion in terms of Islam and the West or Islam and modernity and, and your approach has, has, has rather than looking at these abstractions has really said, well, let's look at material things and material driven and really in many ways, as you said, the, the debate is really an inter-Muslim debate really about modern things that Muslims have already started to adopt and adapt, rather like the, the printing press itself, of course. So Salafism, as you've mentioned, has, has moved in many different directions over the course of the 20th century. I mean, not least because some of Rida's uh, own acolytes, his own students, uh, moved to Saudi Arabia as the state of Saudi Arabia is being founded in the 1920s. So there have been these many different trajectories and developments and offshoots uh, and, and, and internal, I suppose, conflicts with, among self-identifying Salafis themselves. So as we conclude, perhaps I can ask you, what is the legacy of Ridda and Al-Manar in the Muslim world today? I think in some ways his legacy has been greatly exaggerated and in, other, in others greatly underestimated. And it's been greatly exaggerated because he's been credited or blamed with making um, this transition from a kind of enlightened political Salafism or from an Islamic modernism to an Islamic fundamentalism. He's been seen as a crucial, pivotal figure in Islam's modern history. And part of this story is based on the idea that he uh, is a bridge between Muhammad Abdu, to whom you've devoted a podcast, and Hassan al-Banna, to whom you've also devoted a, a podcast on Akbar's chamber. 
I've looked in detail at his writings over the whole course of Almanar, and I have to say that an extreme break or shift in his thought never occurred. So the kind of shift that's being attributed to him has only happened because there's been a great disregard of continuities. And I can't resist saying that those who have exaggerated his legacy have indulged in a sort of great man theory of Islamic history. They've created a very compelling, neat narrative about the tremendous influence of this and that Muslim reformer, instead of trying to think about the many ways in which they reflect broader cultural, religious, and political views and trends. How has his legacy been underestimated? In a couple of ways that we've been talking about already. One was that he was a successful Islamic entrepreneur. This was his accomplishment with Al-Manar, being, being able to function independently as a kind of new intellectual in the early 20th century in a career that was well over three decades was really quite a significant accomplishment. And as a legacy, we have to this day in our libraries, the publications of his press, which include many original and significant contributions to the world of letters. In the second place, I'd like us to recognize his contributions as a global mufti. In fact, I, I refer to him at one point in my book as the first global mufti because he did with printed communications what Yusuf al-Qaradawi would do many years later with websites and satellite TV networks. That is, he used them very effectively to communicate with a broad and dispersed audience. You mentioned a number of journals in different countries that took up his fatwas and in fact often translated and glossed them. In fact, I know from my study of fatwa requests how they came from the Transvaal, Singapore, the Dutch East Indies, China, even the United States. And his fatwas were translated into journals in this period in French, Tatar, Urdu, uh, Malay, Chinese, and, and a number of other languages. So when we think about his legacy, I guess part of what I have to say is that much of it remains to be discovered because there's still a ton of work to be done on the local level to see what was the reception of his writings and what implications it had on a um, local level. And if I may just do so in closing, the last paragraph of my book was very much about legacy and, and your question prompted me to think about that. So maybe I can just read that and, and uh, um, yeah, finish in this way, if I may. The Mufti of Kaira's lighthouse tried to dispel the shadows that darkened his readers' spirits. His fatwas offered a globally dispersed Arabic readership the liberating message that the sacred law allowed Muslims to thrive individually and collectively, no matter where they lived, even under French, British, or Chinese rule, in Beirut, the Punjab, or Guangzhou. He reassured these readers that the tension that they felt between being Muslim and being modern would recede if they pursued profit with pride in Islam 
and disregarded contemporary clerics who insisted on maintaining a regime of medieval taboos. God, he often preached, did not reveal the divine law to Muhammad in order to make Muslims languish in poverty. Islam was fundamentally a religion of ease and prosperity. If Muslims worldwide would free themselves from the hardships that divided them, they would achieve political power and enjoy a religious resurgence as a united community. This was the dream that inspired Rida's laissez-faire vision for Islam. It gave wings to the strangely modern idea that the spirit, if not the letter of the sacred law, would accommodate in the future what it had accommodated in the ancestral past, all the marvelous goods and wonderful inventions of this world. Well, in that eloquent closing statement, I think you've given us a real sense of what can be accomplished with careful and close reading of primary sources of evidence. And that's something that Akbar's chamber is really keen to promote the importance of evidence-based research and understanding of the Islamic world and the kind of important, innovative and indeed evidence-based findings that we can make based on that kind of research. Leo Halevi, thank you for talking to us in Akbar's chamber. It's my pleasure and honor, thank you. Da 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 da